0: Hello everyone. Welcome to season two of Equals. This is Nadia.
1: Welcome everyone. This is Nabil. I'm really looking forward to another season together on Equals. And if you're out there joining us for the first time, Equals is a podcast that's all about hope in the fight against inequality. It's it's where we interview some really amazing people from different walks of life from around the world.
0: Yeah. And I'm excited to kick it off this January, which is always a fun time for us, isn't it?
1: Oh, it it really is, Nadia. It's a time that we get to kick up a big storm, let's say, about the extreme, the frightening, the widening gap between rich and poor.
0: That's right. And we get to put out a shocking figure about the state of global wealth inequality around the same time that the richest and most elite of this world are gathering in Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum. Now, Nabil, you've been there, right? What's it like? Well, it's
1: cold, right? It's, it's really cold. And I, and I don't just mean the, the freezing temperatures of, you know, being on a Swiss mountain in the middle of the winter. There's something also quite, you know, chilling, right? About being an ordinary guy, an ordinary Nabil. You can imagine me trying to make my way up this icy mountain to my shared hostel as billionaires fly over me in their helicopters. <laughs>
0: oh my God. It's uh, yeah, quite an image.
1: Yeah. Did, did I paint that image enough for you?
0: you? You did. And I bet you have some crazy stories to go along with that image.
1: You know, what? I I, re- I really do have some crazy stories. But you know for the benefit of our listeners i should probably share those with you offline
0: it sounds good um but no it, it does sound pretty third class status but on some level i mean the fact that you get to be there at all it, it's pretty insane no
1: absolutely and and we go there as oxfam to speak truth to power to work with the allies we have and to really you know show that the rigged economic system that we have that favors billionaires over the rest of humanity It's really causing so much harm and it really needs to come to an end.
0: Yeah, and today we get to talk to someone who thinks that a massive overhaul is really needed. He thinks it's time to abolish billionaires altogether, in fact.
1: Yeah, that's right. Today we're interviewing Anand Giridharadas. He's the editor-at-large for Time magazine. He's a former New York Times columnist. He's the author of several books, the latest of which is a fantastic read I've just finished, called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World.
0: And he's really getting his message out there. Our listeners might have seen him on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I mean, he seems to be everywhere these days. He's presenting some powerful ideas in a gripping way. He seems to be unafraid to take on the elite. And let's be real—I know that you have hair envy, Nabeel. <laughs> why,
1: why do you have to? Why do you have to go there, Nadia? Uh, look, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say it. He does have amazing hair, and. Maybe let's not say that to him in the interview. But look, right, he's, he's Anand has really electrified the debate about billionaire behavior. And and he's got us all questioning the whole, you know, the whole legitimacy of billionaires' desire to change the world.
0: Or, or indeed the illegitimacy and, and why they might be the less people we want changing the world.
1: Totally. Should, should we get on to the interview, Nadia?
0: Let's yeah. do it.
1: Anand, hi! It's fantastic to have you on the show, and we've got to hand it to you for for really energizing this whole debate about the role and and the and the bad behaviour, right, of elites. And straight off the bat, I've got to ask something because I I read you I read about you being described the other day as and I quote the self appointed scourge of well meaning plutocrats everywhere. I read I read that in Fortune. How does it feel to be described this way?
2: No, I, I mean, I just want to. I just want to thank my mom for that description. I yeah. think it was a really, you know, just a moving, moving. Ac- you know, even when it's your mom, it's a moving accomplishment, yeah. and I, I just really appreciate it. You've got a great (laughs) man.
0: But but you have had an incredible year, right? I mean, I remember first hearing about you a year ago, right before Davos and the World Economic Forum, and you were kicking up a storm, saying the whole thing should just be cancelled. I mean, you even wrote a letter to the super rich delegates, and and just a few months before that, your new book was released, which, congratulations, it's been um, received so well. So, I mean, you really have had such a great year. And why don't we just start there? With your book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, which I loved. Um, and let's talk through a couple of its big ideas, starting with the concept that elites put themselves in the vanguard of social change, um, not only fails to make things better, but also serves to keep things as they are. Can can you elaborate on that a bit for us? So,
2: so I think we live in this moment in which everybody listening to this, I hope, can agree on two things, two observations that we'll start with. Observation number one is that we live in a remarkable era of rich and powerful people and big and and powerful corporations bending over backwards to give back, make a difference, Mm. change the world, help their communities, right? Mm. You go on the website of any corporation, big corporation, and there is a tab, I guarantee you, a tab on the homepage of the website detailing their community work right next to investor relations right. and company history and team, you know, yeah. community stuff. You've got these photos of employees in ugly t-shirts digging something to help poor people. Um, the worse the company, if the company doesn't just incidentally harm people, but kind of willfully harms people in order to make money, which some companies do, mm-hmm. then that tab is going to be an even bigger size on the homepage. This is an age of historic levels of philanthropic contribution of of rich and powerful people uh, inventing new modalities like impact investing and social enterprises. And the second observation yeah. that sits uncomfortably alongside that is that the same class of people, and in many cases the same actual people, are in parallel doing another thing. They are in parallel stewarding an economy that persistently, foreseeably, reliably fails most people, squeezes most people, and has produced a winner's take all economy. But by day, the very same class of people is causing the problems they are so publicly endeavoring to solve. And, and they do just enough good to make sure that no one stops their ability to keep doing harm.
1: Yeah, and I find it, I really, I really find it fascinating Anand the way that the way that these folks think about themselves and you've got you've got this whole story in the book as well about you know these new super rich Silicon Valley venture capitalist like profit like figures right of the tech world and the way they see themselves as these selfless insurgents of love you know fighting for the common man fighting for the fairer world even at the same time as they're just killing off regulations and breaking down news and unions that's quite a frightening ideology
2: isn't it in the hands of very powerful people i mean the the idea of revolution and of frankly change itself mm. of changing the world has literally been stolen in our time this is this is the argument of the book that that it is a it is a the idea of a political revolution is a real idea with a real heritage and a real meaning the idea of changing the world in the way that someone like you know gandhi talked about it is a real concept with a real history and a real meaning. And those, that, that, that entire genre of thinking has been stolen and turned into, domesticated into a kind of corporate project. And the argument of the book is that that serves a very particular purpose. Once the idea of political revolution or of changing the world has been co-opted, stolen, defanged, Change itself Mm. is changed. The idea of change is changed. And what is played back to us as change is, in fact, a gussied up defense of the status quo. So when Mm. banks that helped cause the financial crisis in 2008 start using a language of change when they talk about we're going to go to Detroit and we're going to change communities, what they're doing is not merely appropriating language. They're appropriating language with a particular end, which is to make sure that we don't pass the kinds of public policies that would put those banks in a chokehold and prevent them from ever doing that to Detroit again.
0: Yeah, right.
2: Totally. So, in, in many ways, the elite do gooding that I try to trace is oftentimes engaged in an effort to stave off the kind of change that would actually change anything.
0: Let's go into this win-win situation because this is something that you talk about a lot and it's a culture that you say has held up the power of the super rich class, this win-win, uh, this win-win thinking that the rich can get rich but also give back to society, doing good by doing well. Walk us through why it has become such a dominant and mainstream idea and and what's actually wrong with it.
2: You know, doing well by doing good Sounds great. It sounds great. It's a wonderful promise. Win-win. It's a wonderful promise. If you could go to the world of, let's go back in history, because it's easier to see these things when you're not biased by your own time. If you could go back to kind of feudal, late feudal Britain. Right. And you could say, we have found some clever new way to change this society. Because right now we understand it's problematic. We mm-hmm. understand that, you know, only this one little family owns all the land and has all the power. And you got a bunch of other people who are basically serfs and servants. And that's not fair. But we figured out a way to solve this that would empower all those people down below, literally down below. Right. And that would actually in the mix help those on top. Profit and get ahead too. Wow. Who wouldn't take that deal? That sounds fantastic. You tell, you, you, you in the wake of Me Too, you go to men and you say, you know what? We got this really big problem, right? The percentage of women who are being assaulted and raped around the world, the, per- the, the sheer percentage suggests that this can't be a bad apples problem. This is a problem of masculinity, of men, yeah. of all of us. But good news, good news guys. We can do well by doing good. We can empower women and stop this stuff in a way that just gives men more power mm. Two, right. The problem with these stories, the problem with narratives like this is that they are at pains to suggest that we can lift up th- those down below in a given situation without interfering with, and in fact, benefiting those standing on their necks. Yeah, totally. And this is improbable as a matter both of physics and of sociology. I don't know how to lift someone up who is being stood on without interfering with the people standing on them. Maybe someone else here does. And that may seem like a slightly strong analogy, um, over strong analogy to some people. So just to be clear, when I talk about the people down below being stood on. I am talking about tax policies around the world that are designed to keep some people down below and make other people able to hide their money in the Cayman Islands and the Netherlands and route things around so that they don't pay taxes, even though they're some of the biggest companies in the world. I, I once got leaked last year a, a pay stub, a tax tax document and pay stub by an Amazon warehouse employee who'd worked there temporarily and what it confirmed was that he'd paid higher federal income taxes for a few months of work at Amazon than Amazon, the corporation yeah. had paid in federal income taxes. Yeah. One guy. Well, yeah, one guy. Uh, and, and, and so fighting for those kinds of tax policies, which yeah. companies do is standing on people's neck lobbying for, you know, against antitrust and competition scrutiny is standing on people's necks. Um, Fighting to get your off-patent drug extended, you know, by making up some kind of new formulation or new extended release mechanism, as drug companies do, is standing on people's necks. Uh, Pushing for a world of labor law in which you you brand as Uber every driver a micro-entrepreneur in order to basically absolve yourself of any obligation to employees who in many cases are making less than minimum wage – these are all ways in which those on top are standing on the necks of that, those down below.
0: Let's talk about the other big part of your book and, and the other big piece that you talk about. It's on billionaires, and, and you do talk about them a lot. So, what should we do about them? Look,
2: I mean, I think the best thing to do with billionaires would be to not have them anymore. You know, and and what I mean by that is, I'm not saying we like, you know, like send them somewhere. What I'm suggesting is through Things like tax policy—we uh, make decisions all the time about how much money different people get to keep. You know, we have made a choice, for example, that people making twenty grand a year do not get to live a tax-free existence. Right? That—that's true. We could—we could have made that choice in different ways, but we've decided that you know, a student making no money needs to you know pay for the subway or pay for the bus. That's an interesting choice we've made we, we make choices all the time about how much money people get to keep and, and the choice we've made for most people as your work at Oxfam highlights is that most people get to keep almost no money so the the current default policy position around the world is that most people should keep almost no money. The only exception we make for that is for a is, you know is for a relatively thin strata of people who get to keep ridiculous amounts of money, Yeah, um, amounts of money so vast that, that if, if they were to be redistributed into, into services and other things that would be, you know, education, health that make other people's lives more bearable, um, the world would just be so much better off. Um, and so I think we need to do that. Um, but I want to make clear, you know, I think there's two arguments for abolishing billionaires through policy. Well for, let me let me let me say this I think there 's two ways to get to abolishing billionaire policies and there's, and then there 's kind of two arguments for it. The two ways to do it are first on the money making phase right if you actually just regulated things properly, if you had proper tax policies while right. people were making their money, if you had proper labor protections while you were making your money, if you you know weren 't allowed to mindlessly extend patents, if you weren 't allowed to be a monopoly etc. People would just make way less money to begin with, right? The, The Bezos Zuckerberg type fortunes are only plausible when in the on the upward climb, there's just not enough safeguards, right? Second, once the money is made, in case you don't, you know, catch fortunes as much as you might, although you should through those kinds of pre-distribution methods. There is then redistribution through something like a wealth tax, income tax, capital gains tax, etc., etc. Many of the things under discussion in the United States and elsewhere. Um, So that's kind of a second phase two. Once the money's in the bank, you you can do that. Now, there's historically two kinds of arguments we'll make to justify this. One is the you know, Pitching in, pay your fair share. You've you've been blessed. It's it's kind of morally right that mm-hmm. you support shared institutions that allow other people to also have a decent life, and I think that's a that's a fine argument. But that argument stops short of saying that it is intrinsically dangerous for someone to have $100 right. in a hundred billion dollars in in a society, and that has almost been like mm-hmm. almost a uh, an extreme point of view. And that's the point of view that I would like to articulate. I actually think even if you had a society where you'd redistributed enough, where where you had accounted for that kind of level of basic decency, I actually don't think anybody should have $100 billion. Um, And I'm not sure anybody should have a billion unless we could be sure that that wouldn't buy them undue influence over public life in a democracy. And at least in the United States, there's absolutely no way to ensure that. So having a fortune that big means you are essentially stomping out the votes of millions of people. And that is an unacceptable condition. Um, It gives you a level of leverage over workers and others that is an unacceptable condition. It makes you you know, listened to by nonprofits and senators and others in a way that's an unacceptable condition. I think we need to get to the place where we say, we're happy if some people have more than others and are rewarded for coming up with great things. But I don't think anybody needs a billion dollars. And I think those of us who are in this argument, actually, we need to be braver about talking about that and moving the, moving the Overton window of the conversation in that direction. And the
1: Overton window, it has shifted, hasn't it? Because even the things you were saying now, Anand, Would have, would have been kind of, uh, would have kind of been laughed at, would have been ridiculed a bit a few years ago, but now, now it's, it's kind of entered the serious realm of, of policy debate. And let me, let me just add here, like a bit of a counter now. Now, Anand, you're a Dissi, I'm a Dissi, we know we've got our Asian heritage, we have a, probably a certain kind of group of similar win-win friends who, who, who think in certain ways about the work we do to fight inequality. I find it hard to convince them sometimes that, you know, this whole idea about, you know, they think that to be anti-billionaire, to be uh, anti-wealth is to be against aspiration. They ask me, you know, what's wrong with working hard for some money? What would you say to them?
2: Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with this. I mean, people come up to me at my book events uh you know, my my South Asian brethren and are like, what are you doing, man? Like we're just we're just trying to become billionaires. Like why are you you know, like why are you busting this party like right, right when we get into the party? Um, you know, I'm sure it's not fun working for Oxfam either. People are like, like not only did you not become a doctor, you became the absolute opposite of a doctor, which is someone who's trying to prevent our people from becoming billionaires. Um so yeah. so, so I, I I get it. Um look, I would say a couple things. I would say to my South Asian brethren, this is probably true of other communities too, why did so many of us leave these countries, right? And there's a whole set of historical reasons involving colonialism and various other isms. And what a lot of those isms have in common is the societies, in many cases, our families left were run for very few people, whether that was the British whether that was landed gentry and feudal lords, whether that was upper caste people. Um, in many cases, the reasons we got out of those countries is those countries were yeah. casinos run for 100,000 people or a million people. And
1: yeah. it's
2: worth remembering mm-hmm. that that is the failure of those societies. Those societies sent so many bright people away because those bright people concluded that there was no way they could ever win in a rigged casino. And to then come to America and want nothing more than to be part of, you know, benefiting from an increasingly rigged casino that is starting to look more and more like the South Asia you left behind is, is foolish totally anand consider yourself invited to the
1: next biryani party at my house to to win over our south asian brethren but you know
2: uh, i'm on keto right now which is, <laughs> so i appreciate that but it's another thing that south asian i mean i'm i'm going to go to india later this week and i'm very concerned about how people are going to process the fact that i don't eat rice
0: what are you going to eat dude you don't eat rice
2: i'm not sure maybe i'll just maybe i'll just not eat that week i, I don't know i think it's going to be like a week of painful conversations
1: <laughs> pretend you're fasting or but i actually have man.
2: lost weight so there's so when indian people are like you've lost weight for once it'll actually be real like i will have actually lost weight
1: <laughs> if there's if it's one thing about us south asian types we look we love our diets so 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 look like look i find it really powerful that that contrast that you draw even going back into colonial times and, and the comparison with the now and I, I re- we, we we really like the way you use your language and and language language is everything right and I'd love to just talk momentarily. We are ruled by language. We are ruled by language, and I'd love to talk just a little bit about the kind of language we need to use to really win people over to inspire people, even about the role that government can play to make their lives better. Now, you you've I've, I've seen you speaking about you know how progressives need to reclaim the mantle of patriotism. How can we do that? One of
2: the things that strikes me is you have at this point in America a, a right that is comfortable with authoritarianism and comfortable with economic policy that is ex- virtually explicitly designed to redistribute wealth from the many to the few. And you look at the Trump tax cut, you look at the full economic agenda of the right. It is entirely a, you know, plutocratic agenda. And one of the consequences of that is that the right has a really difficult sales challenge. It is selling to 51% of the public, it hopes, an agenda that will benefit 1% out of that
0: 51%.
2: And because of that, Because of the, the, the scale of that sales challenge, right? I mean, it's like, it's like selling arsenic to people. (laughs) But if you had to sell arsenic to people, you would become a very good salesperson. Mm -hmm. You would become talented. Someone who has to sell arsenic and has to, to survive is going to become a much more talented salesperson than a person who has to sell donuts. The right has gotten incredibly good at selling, at connecting to people's hearts because of the sheer difficulty of selling to people what is going to destroy them. And the left is an equal and opposite story. And I don't think people are honest enough about this. Because there is such an internal self-assurance that folks are doing the right thing for the right reasons for the right people, I think the left has gotten remarkably lazy at the selling part of it they need to go beyond the language of justice um, and a kind of standard left vocabulary that I hear all the time because that that vocabulary works very well on the people it has already worked very well on. Um, That vocabulary has won over the people it's already won over. It's not an expansionary vocabulary and it's not the only vocabulary in which to sell these things. And so I've started thinking about what would a less lazy left, rhetorically speaking, sound like? If, if it, if it was trying harder to working harder, if it was less assured of the wisdom of its policies and actually really trying to convince skeptics, what would it sound like? And it seems to me there are two languages that are deep, resonant, powerful, emotionally, um, emotionally explosive American languages that are all but neglected by the left. The first is patriotism. The second is personal transformation.
0: So let's talk about the, the place where the people who have been very successful at selling maybe the wrong things to society are gathering in just a few days. And that, that's Davos, um, just switching gears a bit. And it, you know it's the 50th anniversary, in fact. Um, am I right, right to assume you aren't on the invitation list?
2: i'm actually in um i'm actually in davos right now i'm i'm locked in a in a ba- basement in a, oh. in a in a dungeon or something right i'm in a dungeon yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i was just I, I was hoping someone would i i thought a podcast the i mean in the old days you just bang on the door but these days getting on a podcast is the best way to get people's attention yeah
0: We're going to get you out, don't worry. So what's your message to those who are there um, arriving in their helicopters and limos? And do you think there's anything different about this year? Are they more self-conscious given all the backlash they've been facing in the press and the political arena? What are you thinking?
2: Once again, many of the people most responsible for some of the biggest shared problems we have are gathering to toast themselves as the solution to those problems. Um, And I think this year's Davos could be short and people could actually go back to their families a few days ahead of time um, if they just come together and agree to pay their damn taxes, stop lobbying against the kinds of regulation that actually restrict corporate power and, 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 you know, help most people, um, and stop rigging systems, stop using, you know, Bermuda to do nefarious um tax policy, um, and and to actually start paying people a living wage um around the world, stop doing trade policy that hurts workers and helps companies. We don't need them to change the world. We need them to stop, you know, to stop rigging the world um in the way okay. that makes it necessary okay, so to change it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I look forward to you getting out of your dungeon, Anand. Let, let me uh, on that on that note. Let me try and end with with something hopeful, man. Like, you know, we've we're, we're at the start of a new decade. It's twenty twenty. We're at the, we're at the start of our new series about hope in the fight against inequality. I'm keen to hear, Anand, what what are you? What's exciting you right
2: now? Give us some hope. Look, I, I think that we are in the kind of grim times that are actually hopeful times if you look hard enough. I I do believe that we are living in a kind of end times for the manic hypercapitalism that has run America and fanned out around the world over the last 40 years. I I just think that's happening. And there and there really is that
1: possibility around the world. And and we've 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 got to end it there and we have to we have to it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and really have to thank you for joining us.
2: No, thank you so much for, for having me and I admire I admire the work that Oxfam does so much. So thank you for, for doing what you do.
0: Thank you and have a great day.
1: Well that Nadia was a pretty kick ass way to kick off season two, wasn't it? What did you think of the interview?
0: I loved it. It was a great conversation. Um, It flowed nicely. And I really liked in particular the idea about how we use language to present our ideas. You know, where you might think it's Mm. the right thing to do to provide social security, but let's start saying it's a patriotic thing to do. Patriotic to ensure everyone has a dignified job.
1: Yeah, it's surely patriotic to ensure that, you know, people aren't homeless on the streets or that all our kids have the chance to go to a good school.
0: I was left wondering if the narratives being used are different in different countries or like outside the US. So, I mean, what's it like in the UK, for example?
1: Oh, it's a really good question, actually. I mean, take the National Health Service that we have in the UK, the NHS. Everyone loves this amazing institution that, you know, guarantees health care for all. It doesn't matter how rich, how poor you are. And people across the political spectrum, they really defend it. It's some level of, you know, unpatriotic taboo to attack the NHS. That's surely a good thing. And frankly, the NHS, and it does need defending.
0: That's such a crazy difference. that That's what's considered patriotic on the other side of the ocean, where, you know, it's a very different um, discussion and debate here in the US.
1: Yeah, me, Nadia, and, and no matter how much I love America, and I do... I think I'll comfortably stick to this side of the world.
0: Fair enough. So so what did you think about his last answer on hope?
1: Well, I I think it's pretty exciting, actually. You know what we're witnessing. The perception is shifting. People, I think, increasingly see that there is this direct link between that billionaire bonanza at the top and the crushing of so many ordinary people
0: true and he seriously does challenge the idea that the super rich should be in the driver's seat of change you know through impact investing and the other examples that he gave he challenges it well
1: totally and very eloquently right and he challenges that idea that you know we can all somehow hold hands together and all sing kumbaya together and you know and that everyone wins together no let's be frank billionaires are going to have to lose something for the majority to gain.
0: And ultimately, I do think this whole debate that's erupted about whether or not billionaires should even exist, it is the right debate to be having.
1: It really is, right? And it's an urgent debate to be having too.
0: Indeed. So, well, with that said, let's say goodbye to our listeners and look forward to our next episode, which will be on what?
1: Our next episode, which I'm sure will be a cracker. A
0: cracker. (laughs) Uh, I'm learning uh, yeah, all of these British terms.
1: <laughs> it certainly will be a cracker. It'll it'll be about something in our economy that, that's quite hidden, that doesn't get talked about way enough, but that economic system, it really heavily relies upon to function. And I'm talking about the whole issue of women's work, particularly the unpaid care work that women do.
0: All right. Sounds interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to the rest of season two. We've got a cracking lineup for you.
1: <laughs> yes. Cracking indeed Hey everyone out there Any ideas that you have for the podcast Wacky, sensible as they are Things we could do better Do let us know Drop us a line at Equals at Oxfam.org Thanks everyone for listening See you next time